I'm not that old, but I but I came to this career in writing quite late, um, and and I hope brought a whole bunch of things to it that if I was 25, I wouldn't be bringing to it. So, you know, I'm interested in um, in sharing with people what being a late starter means. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a podcast about living a happy, healthy, and ethical life. Although I'm a politician and an economist, this isn't a podcast about politics or economics. It's about living a good life, which is an idea that goes back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. What Aristotle meant by a good life was the life that one would like to live, a life with pleasure, meaning and richness of spirit, the life that most of us were trying to live until everything else got in the way. In this podcast, I'll seek out guests, not because they're smart, but because they're wise. I'll speak with writers, athletes and social justice campaigners, with people who've been lucky and those who've experienced hard times. I've found their stories fascinating, and I hope you do too. In 2013, a novel called The Rosie Project hit the shelves. It was a romantic comedy, but one that appealed to men and women alike. To date, around 2 million people worldwide have read the book, which counts among its fans Bill and Melinda Gates. The Rosie Project was written by Graham Simsion, who spent much of his adult life building up a data modelling company and writing textbooks on questions like the suitability of the five P's framework in database design. But as well as excelling on left-brain activities, Graham's also managed to publish about a dozen short stories, a dozen short films and plays. The film of The Rosie Project is in production. In this sense, he's similar to his wife, Anne Boost, Professor of Women's Mental Health at the University of Melbourne, who's also written four novels. In 2014, Simpson followed The Rosie Project with a sequel, The Rosie Effect, which also sold spectacularly well. I'm speaking with him today on the launch day of his latest novel, The Best of Adam Sharp, a book about what happens when long-lost lovers get back in touch. I'm speaking with him in Canberra, a city whose marathon nearly killed him, but created one of the best short stories about running I've ever read. Graham, welcome to The Good Life. Thank you very much, Andrew. First of all, the marathon. Do you resent our city? No, I don't resent the city. I made a very, well, no, I was very unlucky. I was well prepared for the marathon, but I went out there and just sometimes things go wrong on the day and I just pushed through the pain. And at the end of it, a week later, I was in intensive care and, you know, it was a little bit touch and go for a while. So you do these things in life and what can you do? You, you look back and say, I shouldn't have done it, but you don't have those choices. Rob DiCostello, I think, started off the marathon on the day that you ran it, has this lovely line where he says, uh, uh, the marathon is a seri serious race, and if you disrespect it, it will hurt you. Uh, I've, yeah. uh, I've felt that pain before, and it sounds like you did in uh, even more spectacular style. Yeah, well, well, he also said at some point you're going to have to dig deep, and it's probably physically, it's certainly physically as deep as I've ever dug in my life. And, you know, if I hadn't, if it hadn't been the marathon day, the thing that I actually prepared for it had been a training run, I would have stopped. But, yes. uh, you know, I decided if my knees went, I was going to stop, but, you know, it was just muscles, just muscles, who cares? And they were <laughs> melting. <laughs> <laughs> Literally melting down. Well, look, I'll uh, put up a link so people can re read, the, read the short story. It's a terrific one. 
but I wanted to start on the uh, the theme that uh, sort of sits behind the Rosie project, mm. that of uh, autism and uh, Asperger syndrome. Uh, your central character, Don Tillman, is a genetics professor who's both brilliant and at the same time socially clueless. But the book's written in a way that I think there's a lot of the activity in it that many men can uh, can say, oh, I can see myself in that. Uh, it's inspired, I understand, from a close friend of yours? Well, it was inspired by... Um I guess, a career, a life in the sciences that um, I was in the radio club at school um, and then I, I studied physics and after that I worked for about 30 years in information technology. I did a PhD. I taught um, at the University of Melbourne in the science faculty. Um, you know, I ran a business in, in IT. So I met a lot of people like Don Tillman. Now, there was one particular friend who I guess I took his voice in my head, and originally his personal story inspired the first draft of the book. But um, th there's no real-life Don Tillman. Um, in subsequent redrafts and so forth, uh, the story moved a long ways. It's unrecognisable as any part of his you know, personal life. And the character changed a lot too. But he was the starting point, yeah. And like many other people, I suspect, it's a, it's a book which I've given a lot to people whose child is, uh, is is on the spectrum to people who uh, have sibling, siblings on the spectrum because it uh, it brings out the the great strengths of uh, of, of somebody somebody on the on the spectrum uh, you must have worked very hard to to achieve that well look it was really a storytelling question i didn't start off the book with any sort of social mission in mind i wanted to tell a story as well as i could and i think when you do that and i think most authors would agree with me that you, you don't sit out and with a theme, the theme emerges and it emerges out of your own values. That The things you believe in permeate the book whether you like it or not. So you sit out and say, I'm going to tell a story about um, a socially awkward man trying to find a partner and, you know, and succeeding or not. Um, and your own feelings for people like that guy are going to inform it. Now, now in fact, the guy who um, particularly inspired the Don character is someone I have enormous personal respect for. Um, he's cared for a very ill partner for more than 20 years with unwavering um, dedication and loyalty, something that I, I would look at myself in the mirror and say, could I do that? So I'm writing about a man who I think is probably a better man than I am, and that, that helps... Um, I think the Asperger's community um, responded to the book well, first of all because he was portrayed sympathetically, and, and part of that was being inside his head. I think too often we see the unusual person only as a vehicle for someone else to grow. So if you look at Rain Man, we're never really asked to relate to the Dustin Hoffman character, mm. to Raymond. Mm. We're asked to relate to the Tom Cruise character and what he's going to learn from interacting with the weird guy who we never want to get too close to. So it was very important to me... Um, that we were inside Don Tillman's head. And I even deliberately held off the introduction of the Rosie character to stop anybody wanting to relate to Rosie. They wanted them to be in Don's head, not, not Rosie's head. And I think the other thing that helped um, get a, a sympathetic re response is people say, what, um, what research did you do on Asperger's syndrome? And my answer is 30 years in information technology, Me meaning that it came, Don came from real people, not from reading a textbook, and trying to you know, put those tra textbook trays into a character. And you know, people will say to me, um, but, but he drinks. Aspies don't drink. I say, you're kidding. You're saying there's no Aspie in the whole <laughs> world who drinks booze? I said, well, 
Most of them don't. Now, let's not have an atypical Aspie. I think it's exactly what I want. I want an individual human being who might not be the typical Aspie, but who has all sorts of other attributes. And even the way in which the story is is, is told is quite different. I mean, the, the descriptions of the world around Don are incredibly spare. Uh, there's no sort of extraneous detail about what he sees. Oh, no, I deliberately chose to write the book in first person um, because that way we except when someone else speaks, and it's quite important when someone else has a line of dialogue because they give us another view of the world. But all the rest of the time, it's not just Don's speech, as you would see in a, in a movie. It's Don's description of what's going on, his analysis of the situation. I wanted you to get into his head and think as he thought and, and recognise that this is a legitimate, viable way of seeing the world. It might be different, but it's functional um, and... Yeah, there are a few problems, and don't we all have a few problems? He's he can get on. I talked to my mum today about uh, the Rosie Project, and she said, "Oh, I never really thought of it as being a novel about uh, Aspergers." She said, "I thought of it about it uh, being a novel about finding love, and about the fact that when you look for love, uh, you can't find each of the trays that you're looking for because people come in in whole packages." Uh, that notion of the search for love must must be something you think about a lot, I guess, because well, it's in your latest novel, for one. Yeah, look, I'm interested in writing about love. Um, I, you know, I think that probably, if you want to put in the sort of way that Don Tillman would put it, he'd say one of the most critical decisions we make in our lives is our selection of a life partner. <laughs> numerous, you know, numerous um, outcomes will flow from that, or, or words to that effect, and. I mean, it's a crucial decision for most of us. It's a life-changing decision for, for most of us to commit to, to a person. Sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. So I'm interested not only in the search for love, which is what um, the Rosie Project was about, um, but also, um, as in The Rosie Effect and in the new book, The Best of Adam Sharp, about what does long-term love look like? And, you know, in The Best of Adam Sharp, we're contrasting it with romantic love. We're saying, okay, you know, we, we put up romantic love as being this, we all know what a wonderful thing mm. that is. But, but, you know, what does happily ever after look like? So I was signing a congratulations letter today for a couple that had been married for 60 years. And it struck me that that sort of a couple, that those two individuals are almost entirely different people than the, the, the young couple that married one another 60 years ago. Uh, in, a, in, in a sense, one of the huge challenges of marriage is to stay together as, as you change. Uh, how have, have you found that in your own life? Do you have observations on, on uh, how we manage to, to deal with that hugely challenging bit of, bit of our lives? Well, um, experientially, I'm on my second marriage, but this one has lasted for me for um, you know, 20, 28 years, 27 years coming up this year. And you know, people have actually said to me, we have a, a spectacularly successful marriage. I mean, you feel really frightened to say that because you don't want to jinx it. But people said, why don't you and Anne write a book about how marriage works? And the truth is I have. I've written a couple of novels now which are really about you know, what is that long-term, you know, what makes that long-term relationship work? Um, and as I say, that, that interests me a lot. And if you're looking for the answer to it, I think, I think people do change. And I think it's about... And what uh, what Don Tillman would probably call joint projects, I think it's about you know, having plans together. There's that that, that famous um, formulation of what it takes to be happy, and we're talking about the good life. Um, and it was oh, an obscure philosophy. It's one of those things that gets uh, attributed all over the place. But it's the uh, it was Napoleon somebody, but um, the the 
idea that that what you want is a is it something to love, um, something to do, something to love, not someone to love, something to love, and something to look forward to. And I think if you can bring that into your marriage, and particularly that something to look forward to together, that you're making plans together, I think that's a tremendously powerful um, uh, force for keeping a marriage successful. There's interesting stuff now in the economics of happiness that suggests that much of the happiness that we derive from holidays is actually derived in the anticipation of the holiday. Uh, when one greatly looks forward to arriving at the at the beach resort and how perfect the weather will be and in practice on the day the flights are late, there's rain at the beach resort, things aren't quite quite the way, way we want it. But, uh, but that notion that much of much of pleasure in life is uh, is in the in is in the anticipating it. I think is uh, is is important. And um, do you find that in the uh, your own holidays or projects that you uh, that you anticipate? Look, a- absolutely. I mean, John Lennon said, "You know, life is what happens while you're making other plans." <laughs> but 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 those other plans are, are tremendously important. In fact, I'd probably argue and say life is making those plans. They're probably some of the most exciting times that you spend together because. You're using your imagination. You're talking about what it is that you that you both want, and that may well be defeated by reality, um, but you know, that they'll be shared experiences as well. Do you and Anne write together? We do. We actually write in the same room. So physically, we write together. Not not all the time. I mean, right now I'm travelling and I'm I'm writing solo. But our ideal writing is is sitting. Um, a little shack that we've got up in the country and sitting in separate armchairs and, and typing away on our computers with a glass of wine to look forward to at the end of the day and look just occasionally stopping to compare notes. Um, Anne will stop me and say, hey, what's the word for such and such? And I'll stop her to say, listen to this passage. Is this funny or is this funny? Um, <laughs> so we do that. But we also write together in terms of collaborating. So we plan our stories together. We're both planners who work out the plan for the story beforehand. We're each other's first readers, and right now we're working on a on a book together, which will be alternating chapters. So we work very closely together. As is that the first joint bit of writing you've worked worked on together? It's the first um, writing that will have both of our names on it. Um, but you know, Anne has made enormous contributions to to my books, and I'd like to feel that I've uh, repaid that with contributions to hers. So there's not a sense of trepidation that you might be too much in each other's pockets in producing a, a joint work? We're well down the track with it. We're well down the track and it's been pretty successful. We're writing alternating chapters, which is not as bad as having to agree on everything that's written, but you know, yes. I, I get at her chapters and start tearing into the editing of them and so forth. And you know, she'll, she'll give back as good as she gets. Will I know at the end who's written which chapters? Or oh, absolutely. Got... Absolutely. Okay. It, there's two protagonists. I see. Um, right. So... Anne's writing the female's point of view. I'm writing the male's. We thought we'd uh, not make it any harder than that. Um, and, you know, so you'll see the two things. And there's obvious room for comedy because, you know, at the end of the chapter, the man says, well, you know, that went well and <laughs> we passed the baton. What's your ideal writing day? Tell me about your, your routines, which I guess are one of the hardest things for writers. Do you, do you have a time where you start? Do you have a word target that you focus on? No, 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 no. No to all of the above. Um, I'm, you know, people, it's a really common question to ask writers. What is your routine? And I'm amazed that, that people can actually answer that. Look, um, okay, at, at, the, at the end, at the extreme end of it, if you like, is a woman I know, Tanya Chandler, her name is, who um, was in my uh, writing class when I was studying. Three kids, a job, 
You know, most people in the class in those sorts, in that situation would be saying, "Look, I just don't have time to write," and would you know, that would be an excuse for the fact their writing wasn't progressing. But she would get up at four o'clock in the morning, work for three hours before her real day started. Must have half killed her, but she's got a second book coming out um, in a couple of weeks, so she succeeded. She succeeded with that. So that, in that sense, it's a routine. But I don't know what she actually did within those three hours. And even if I was doing that, what I did within those three hours would vary enormously. And that's partly because I'm a, you know, a planner. So sometimes I'm planning, not writing. Mm. You know, when you're planning a plot, you're not writing any words. Um, sometimes I'm writing. Sometimes I'm problem solving. So, But to give you an idea, there's three stages in writing a book from my point of view. There's the planning stage, there's the first draft, and then there's the rewriting or, or editing. And different writers will give different attention to each of those stages, even to the um, extent of saying, I do no planning. I just sit down and I start writing that first draft, and that first draft is going to be perfect till there'll be no editing. So that would be an extreme, extreme view. Um, but it does mean for me that, well, for the best of Adam Sharp, that first draft took me 16 days. So the only 16 days where I was observing anything like you might call a, a writing routine and churning out a certain number of words per day, and they, you know, they were frantic, caffeine-driven, you know, mad writing, but then I spent over a year in edit. So what, this is a 100,000-word book or so? Oh, it's about about 85. So you're producing at a, at a rate of 5,000 words a, words a day when you're, uh, when you're churning it out? When I was, uh, probably my first draft was probably only about 60,000 words, but you know, let's just not you know, split hairs. Yeah, you know, four or 5,000 words a day I can do. I, can, I think probably 8,000 would be the most I've ever written in a day. But if you know what you're writing, if you mm. know and you're not fussing too much about quality, you're just trying to get it done because you know you're going to come back to it, you can write a lot. You can right. write as fast as you can type. Um, I'm happy to accept, uh, accept that, but it's a sort of uh, Shakespearean kind of pace to be uh, to be churning things out. Uh, do you do you think that's because you have the confidence that you're going to spend a lot of time in the editing process? Yeah, look, I, I know that I can edit. It's not so much that I will spend a lot of time, but I know that I don't have to stand by what I'm writing down. Um, I know that life is going to be easier when I'm not trying to deal with a blank page. When mm. I'm dealing with something, I say I can make it better. Um, I've got the confidence that's come from having a plan, so I know I'm not going to get writer's block run out of ideas. In fact, I'm trying to avoid writer's block by just ploughing on. If I if I set the quality bar too high, I'll freeze. Right. And you know, you actually do write some some quite nice stuff that you keep, but there's other stuff where we say there's there's a better way of writing the sentence, uh, or a better way of dealing with that paragraph, or maybe we don't need it at all. Um, but you have to treat your writing. Well, I have to treat my writing as disposable. That no matter how well you write something, if it doesn't serve the story, um, then it may have to go. Kill your darlings, as they say. Yeah, absolutely. And that it applies more to the stuff that you think is wonderful at the time, that's, that's <laughs> flowery, that's, you know, that's um, overwritten. That's, um, Elmore Leonard says, if it looks like writing, I get rid of it. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's a, it's a pretty good maxim. I don't want, for my writing at least, I don't want the writer to be constantly stepping back and saying, what beautiful writing. I want to take myself completely out of that equation and let the reader immerse themselves in the story and the characters and not worry about admiring Graham Simpson as a writer. So then with Adam Sh uh, Sharp, what share of that first draft is in the fi final draft? Is it like 20%, 80%? Well, the plot is almost unchanged. So the, which means that the characters, in terms of real character, the decisions they make, are pretty much unchanged from that first crude draft that I did. 
there's lots of stuff there, but the individual words, the sentences are, are, have been refined. I made, you know, it felt every time I did a rewrite edit, I made massive amounts of change. But when you really stand back, if I'd shown someone that first draft and then the final draft, I said, yeah, it's basically the same story. I don't see what all the work was about. Now, you're a, uh, an academically trained writer. You uh, you studied at, uh, at RMIT. What were the... Uh, what were the lessons you took for that? What did your time at RMIT do for you as a writer? Okay, I would probably say I'm a vocationally trained writer. I was at TAFE, you know, RMIT TAFE, rather than at the university. And you know, the emphasis was on doing rather than on understanding the underlying theory or, or lit crit and, and so forth. Um, I thought it was essential um, for me anyway. I mean, really, I, w- I was 50 years old when I decided I wanted to be a writer. And I guess the biggest lesson that my previous work had taught me was how long it takes to become competent at something and an expert at something. And you know, I didn't start saying, I want to write a book. I started saying, I want to be a writer. Any, any more than a neurosurgeon says, I want to operate in a brain. You don't start there. You say, I want to be a neurosurgeon. I want to be able to learn the skills mm. that it takes to do this thing properly. And I understood how long it was going to take. And I understood that it would not be just about trial and error, that there's you know, a body of knowledge and I ought to learn that body of knowledge to save me from making all the, the mistakes that others you know, have made before me. So there's going to be a body of knowledge and you're always going to have to practice and practice a lot and you're always going to have to look at the work of others and, and critique it um, and you're always going to have to sub, um, subject myself to criticism from people who were more knowledgeable than I was. So for me, that that means signing up to an academic uh, to a, you know to um, a formal program um, to learn the underlying theory and so forth, but also um, to get myself into that milieu, into the world of the people who are doing that, to understand the industry, to have moral support um, and intellectual support from people around me. So I'm enjoying Anders Ericsson's book Peak at the moment, which is all about deliberate practice. He's the guy who came up with the notion of 10,000 hours, although he's uh, somewhat critical about how Malcolm Gladwell has, has taken the, the 10,000 hour, hour principle because Ericsson says people have misinterpreted it to say you just have to write for 10,000 hours or you just have to play the violin for 10,000 hours and then you'll be good. And he says, no, it's about really deliberate practice. So what did you do to what, – what's you, what was your deliberate practice in becoming a writer? No, could not agree more, by the way. Um, you know, that, that it's this deliberate practice. It's not just constantly writing. It's being, as I say, it's being critiqued. It's about not just about practice. It's about learning the underlying theory, all of that. Uh, what did I do? What the the the, um, the course at RMIT was, was just instrumental in this because it it forces you outside your comfort zone for a start. So you know, you get an exercise, write a short story about X, and it's not the thing you want to write the short story about, <laughs> um, or you know. So you have to step outside, and and that gives you um, that gives you confidence when you when you step back in. It stretches you out a little bit more. Um, just you, it, it's about doing focused practice, practice for a purpose. Um, on the other hand, right from the start of the course, um, I thought I'm going to go into this with an idea because then everything I learn can be applied to that. So I'm not going to just walk out of a class and say. That's interesting. I'm going to walk out of the class and say, how can I use that on this thing that I've called the Rosie Project? Mm. So the Rosie Project was my my school project all the way through five years of originally a screenwriting course and then as I got into a, a professional writing and editing course. But but that, that was something – I did an MBA many years earlier. 
And to do an MBA when you're actually working as a manager is a quite different experience, I think, from doing that as an academic subject at, at school because you can relate everything that's being taught to your real experience on the job and you, know, you will challenge your teachers and so forth and say, that's not what I found. Or, and then you'll take it back to work and you'll try it out. So that's your distinction there between when you pulled me up and I, I'd said that you you did academic writing study and you said, no, 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 I did vocational study. The distinction there, I, I, I to make it more sharply, is that you did studies that directly applied to a practical project you were doing. There was nothing purely theoretical about your studies. There was very little that was purely the theoretical. It was, and We did four-hour classes at RMIT and those classes, you know, the, the teacher might come in, I, I can remember... One teacher coming in one time and he said, all right, he says, um, you've got to learn to do scene breakdowns, which is you summarise a scene. This is screenwriting. You summarise a scene in one sentence based on what the purpose of that scene is. And he then gave us a screenplay. It was for, no, I'm, I'll remember at some point, um, American Beauty. He gave us the entire screenplay for American Beauty. In fact, it was a draft screenplay, much bigger than the, the final one. And he just said, get to work. You know, just start doing those scenes. So four hours, we all just sat there and did, did scene breakdowns. So you wouldn't do that in a, in a purely academic type of course. Mm, mm. Um, but these, these were techniques that these guys, many of them um, practitioners who came in as contract teachers, very valuable people, um, just gave us, said, you've got to practice this. You've got to learn it. So there's this... Uh Economic theory of creativity, that these, uh, the, the world is sort of broken up into two creati creative types. Uh, one type which are driven by a single idea, um, think Picasso, Joyce, uh, another kind who are driven much more experien experientially, drawing from the world around them and sort of experimenting on what they, what they do, uh, think uh, Dickens or Matisse. Uh, and the theory has it that the, the people who are driven by a single grand idea tend to peak young in their 20s often, and those who are driven by the world around them and tend to experiment much, much more uh, peak later in life. So Matisse's best work, Dickens' best work, comes later in life. First of all, do you buy the dichotomy? Secondly, do you feel like you fit more neatly in the uh, in, in the Dickens Matisse camp. Well, I'd better. <laughs> I'd better because I'm sixty. Um, so if my best work has been done early in life, it's too late. Look, I, I felt um, you know I came through a science background, and you know I think there are uh, physiological questions here about um, you know, what your you know, when your brain is at its peak to do um, this highly intellectual work of mathematics and and so forth, and whether so so I I wouldn't buy the dichotomy. There you go. And that's an immediate reaction rather than a considered response. I wouldn't buy the dichotomy um, because um, I think it's, it, it depends on the nature um, of, of, what you're, of what you're trying to do, uh, what, what your goal is. Um, it depends a little bit. Yeah. Just think it through. I mean, my, my, my background here is that I, I did a PhD which was on, on database design. But I was investigating the creative um, aspect of that, so it was really a human, you know, behavioural type of PhD, hmm. and I didn't look at that economic theory of creativity. I looked at um, at psychological theories of, of creativity, um, which were quite which were quite different. So you're, you're challenging me with something that's quite quite different, and, and, and you know, it's a it's not a dichotomy that I'm closely relating to. 
Um, again, as I say, I, I think um, you're going to find most of your mathematicians picking young, not because they have a grand idea, but because physiologically that's where they're coming from. You're going to find a certain type of writer um, who draws on the real world and so forth, reaching a level of maturity that they're able to do it. I mean, that, that's me. Um, I People say, don't you regret um, starting so late? I don't think I had the maturity to to write well earlier. I think I needed that that time to grow up, even though it took a very long time. So in that case, you'd, uh, you'd, you'd regard there as being two kinds of people in the world, one kind that believe that the world can be divided neatly into two kinds, and <laughs> another kind that believe that the world's much more complicated than that. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I'm still going to stick with my theory for 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 a little longer. One of the things that you notice with Indigenous art is almost all of Australia's great Indigenous artists uh, do their work uh, very late in life, uh, and in in part, I think that's because they're drawing on stories uh, stories around them, and there's a lot of lot of experimentation. Indigenous art, in some sense, is sort of a polar opposite from Cubism. Okay, uh, so so I would say there that you're, you're running with a dichotomy that is about people, and yet I think that the the dichotomy might more correctly be about the nature of the work. You said yeah, the nature of Aboriginal art is that it's drawn on this and this and this. Um, but but then we could go back the other way and say, well, the best practitioners, you know, or traditionally it has been done by, by these practitioners who come to it later in life, but it might well be that um, you know, in 10, 20 years we discover that um, young Aboriginal artists are doing something quite different that we regard as having merit as well. It's totally plausible, and one can easily tell another story to argue again against myself uh, that the reason that successful Indigenous artists have done their work late in life is that it hasn't been possible for uh, most of uh, of Australian uh, history for Indigenous artists to make a living make a living from their art. So it's been something people have pursued in retirement. Um, but how has it shaped you to have this global success thrust upon you in uh, in, in your fifties? Do you feel as though uh, your, you, in in some sense, you have the the bedrock of a strong marriage, the comfort of knowing who you are, uh, or Look, not not to mention being financially secure. Yes. Um, so you know, I, I previously ran a business. Um, we were reasonably successful. Um, you know, a lot of risk in it. Um, it wasn't as if we felt month to month that you were secure. Um, but came out of that when I sold my business with a, you know a reasonable financial base that I wasn't. Um, so, and I'd been used to you know, traveling the world, giving seminars, those sorts of things. Um, so the nature of the job wasn't, you know, standing up in front of crowds, getting getting um, a certain amount of visibility. Uh, I, I was at the um, the twenty twenty summit that Kevin Rudd you know, organized. And I was on television. I was, you know, I was when I say I was facilitating. So I was up front on television. I had my little bit of fame. Um, so it wasn't as if I was you know, 25 and suddenly um, hanging out with people that I was uncomfortable with or anything mm, like that. Mm. And look, I think by this age, you, you've realised that this, these sorts of things are, are pretty shallow. And the, the pleasure I'm getting out of the writing is, um, is the joy of doing this job, of, of creating books that people want to read uh, rather than any of those peripheral things such as you know, the fame of it or the money. Um, I, fortunately, I mean, I think it was... Um, James Baldwin said it, the money, it turned out, was like sex, that when you didn't have it, you thought of nothing else. But once you had some, you thought about other things. And so coming from that sort of base, that's been great. Yes. And are you happiest when, you're, uh, when your book is released or are you actually happiest when experiencing the flow state, sitting next to Anne, writing away? 
absolutely the latter, the best. Yeah. I mean, there's a relief when the book is released because it's never all just fun. But when things are flowing and you're writing something that you feel is, is worthwhile, even if you know that probably later you'll throw it out, that feeling of creativity is, is you know, it's, it's an enormous part of the human condition, I think. I think to be human is to be creative. Um, and, you know, it doesn't mean you have to write books. It doesn't mean you have to make movies or pottery or anything like that. I mean, you may be creative working in the shed on a, you know, on a repair or something like that. Um, but just to make something to, to create is, you know, for many of us, the most satisfying thing we do. And do you miss anything about moving away from what economists would call joint production to individual individual production? Uh, from, I mean, you ran a, quite a big team, right? You had about 70 people in your, in your yeah, firm? Yeah, like, oh. I wasn't particularly good at it. Looking back at it, managing people is is just about the toughest thing you can do. There's an enormous if you care about it, there's an enormous amount of stress involved. If you get to a certain size in a company, you can delegate that. But at the sort of size company we had, if something really serious happened in personnel, it was going to end up um, mm. with me. And there was also a lot of financial risk um, associated with it. One of the nice things about writing is that there's really no serious downside. You're not going to lose your house over a book, I mean, unless perhaps you get get sued. But in general. Um, the worst risk is you don't get paid, not that you, you lose investment or anything like that. Um, and it's look, it's largely an individual endeavour, but there are team aspects of it when it comes to marketing the book, certainly with editing. Um, and you know, I used to work as a consultant. Um, so I'm getting rid of my own back now with the editors giving me feedback and I really have to bite my, yeah, bite my tongue sometimes and say, well, you know, this is what you used to do other people. <laughs> Eat this up, um, yeah, suck it up and... And that's actually you know, good fun to work with, with other people to get a result, for which I get most of the credit, which is very nice. And do you see yourself as continuing to work as a novelist or are you thinking about moving into, into the area of uh, screenplays? What, is, what, what are the next couple of creative decades have in store for you? Well, the, um, yeah, I came to novel writing from screenwriting. I didn't think I was up to writing a novel. I didn't think I had it in me. You know, I, I had a little bit of a try in, in my 20s and just felt, no. I mean, it's ludicrous. It's like saying I had a little try at brain surgery and the guy died, so I didn't bother studying it any further. You know, Obviously, I should have thought about studying it properly. But I thought I could do screenwriting. I convinced myself I could do screenwriting. I convinced myself it was e easier than novel writing. And with respect to the screenwriters out there, I think... In some ways it is, that it's you're not doing the whole job. You are putting down a template that other people will then contribute to. But um, really because I couldn't get my movie of The Rosie Project up um, because I was a, a newbie, it, you know, that um, people would rather adapt books these days, I went around and said, okay, I've learned an awful lot of things along the way to being a novelist. There's not quite, I'm not coming from zero at the moment. I can, you know, I can build on that. So, so I did that um, and... I would still return to doing screenwriting if there were interesting projects there. But being a novelist is so much easier because, well, for a start, you'll probably get published. If I wrote a screenplay today, the chances that it would actually be made into a, into a movie are, are relatively low. If it's commissioned, that's different. If I'm on a team mm. um, for a TV series in a, in, you know, in a writer's room, that's different too. And I, I'd probably grab those opportunities with both hands. But for the moment, you know, writing novels is, is enormously satisfying. I, I might... Um, I'm looking at writing uh, not a memoir but a, a, a book of stories in the way that, say, David Sedaris would do, and I think that would be a lot of fun too. Uh, do you have a theme in mind? Um, look, look, part of it is about being an old guy. Um, part of it is about You're the... You're not that old. I'm not, I'm not that old, but I, but I came to this career in writing quite late. 
Um, mm. and, and I hope brought a whole bunch of things to it that if I was 25, I wouldn't be bringing to it. So, you know, I'm interested in, um, in sharing with people what being a late starter means, what, what changing careers late in life um, is like, what are the challenges, what are the pros, what are the cons. Very good. Look forward to reading it. Well, let me ask you just a, a few final questions. Um, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Okay, what advice would I give to my teenage self? Um, I would... That's an enormously hard question, I guess because I'm pretty happy with the way that my life has gone. Um, so I haven't made any, you know, any terrible, terrible mistakes. And I feel that when I've, when I've taken a wrong turn, that turn has ultimately been, um, has been good for me, except for running that marathon in Canberra. I would, I would say to my teenage <laughs> self, if you're ever running a marathon in Canberra, for God's sake, when you start to feel really crook, pull out. Um, I think, um, I think um, that the 10,000 hours, that it takes a long time to be good at something and enjoy the journey is really important. I guess I learnt that anyway, but there was a, there was a time when, um, when I was really working hard, you know, doing the 10,000 hours and really probably much more focused than most of my screenwriting students um, Co student cohort there who were, you know, going out of the pub and being what you're doing when you're 25 and so forth. I was the, the really focused, mm. the really focused older guy. And I declared that my goal was to get a Hollywood movie made. And the head of the school took me aside and clearly out of real concern, he said, Graham, will you be okay if you don't get there? Because, you know, there's a very good chance I wouldn't. And I think she was genuinely concerned for my, for my mental health. And I sort of laughed and said, look, I'm enjoying this journey so much. And I would probably just say, by all means, Graham, or young Graham, um, set really important goals, but, but don't, don't forget to smell the flowers. Don't forget to enjoy the journey. Yes. What's something you used to believe but don't anymore? You're really asking some hard questions here, and I could I could say God, and that would take us down a whole path. <laughs> <laughs> but but what did I used to believe and don't anymore? Um, look, you know, there's a let me tell you, there's there's one. Um, I used to believe I would never have a a long term successful relationship in marriage. I was just that. So perhaps that's something I'd have said to my teenage self. You go through a stage in, as a teen, early 20s and so forth, where many of us believe that we're just not cut out, we're never going to be, uh, we're never going to find a partner and those sorts of things. And what I've watched all around me, of course, is that, that people do find do find someone else. But I guess the, the sort of romantic ideal of love, um, there's a blurb on the back of the Rosie Project in some countries, probably here, that says, Don learns that you don't find love love finds you. Now, I sort of get what they're saying, that you don't find it scientifically. But equally, um, I would turn around and say, you don't find love, you make it. Mm. That love is something that you make, that you create, not something that you find. And I think that's, um, yeah, that would be a pretty important learning for me. Well, you've already said you disagree with one of my economic ideas, but another favourite economic idea of mine is that uh, uh, love is not mining it's manufacturing 
that 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 it is much less about finding the perfect perfect one and much more about uh, endeavouring to enhance the shared connection that you begin with and so that set of shared experiences builds into something really strong that can that can sustain itself against the inevitable shocks of course and you'll probably do better if you start off with lower expectations um i mean we talk about arranged marriages for example in the past my, my grandfather um and grandmother you know and basically his my grandfather's wife died left leaving with you know, young children he uh recruited a nurse um you know a nanny and when her visa ran out in three months, um, his recourse was to marry her. And, you know, so they were th thrown together and they just worked on They were together you know, for just on 50 years until his death. Gosh. And they were, you know, an example of a really successful, close marriage um, because you know, clearly they decided they'd work on it rather than feeling that they'd found their soulmate and everything mm. would work out. Mm. So that was an important lesson for me growing up, I think. We, you know, we all knew in the family this is what had happened. Yes. And, you know, they were yet seen as being a, a fantastically successful couple. That's beautiful. What's the most important thing you do in life to stay mentally and physically healthy? <clears throat> well, <laughs> I can tell you the worst thing I do is I drink too much. So it's a, I think it's a bit of a hazard <laughs> that can go, go with the writing life. And if I, if I abstained a bit, I'd probably be more mentally and physically healthy. Um, so i tell you what, I would have probably said, there you go, go back to the teenage self. I'd have probably told myself not to drink. There you go. I mean, I don't class myself as an alcoholic, but you know, who does? You know, I and I would probably say, you know, Winston Churchill once said, you know, alcohol has given me more than it's than it's taken. I, you know what? I'm not so sure about that. Um, so I wouldn't encourage our kids to drink, for example, and we we haven't, except by example, unfortunately. Um, so what was your question again before I started? The most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy. And I think um, your answer is... Uh, well, well, I keep fit. I mean, I mean, I keep physically reasonably fit. Um, I go jogging. Um, my wife drags me out of bed to go to the gym. She is a stern disciplinarian. I think that's, that's, that's pretty good. Look, I think one of the crucial things I do, you mentioned at the beginning, you said we ha I had a... a a movie in um, in the develop sorry in um, in production with Sony Pictures. It's not. It's actually in development. Just to make the the distinction, meaning, and they often refer to development as development hell. So we've had Jennifer Lawrence <laughs> attached and Richard Linklater attached, and then Jennifer dropped out and Richard dropped out behind her, and that was uh, so we had champagne and then we're not having champagne, and then we had uh, Ryan Reynolds attached and up again we go and down we go. We've had so many of these things. And I don't let that phase me at all. One of the important things I learned in life is not to worry about things you can't control. That, you know, go back to Stephen Covey or someone like that and circle of concern, circle of influence, you know, worry about your circle of influence, try to expand it if you can, yeah. but don't spend your time fretting about things that are outside your circle of influence. That sounds very important. Just out of curiosity, how far away until the Rosie Project hits our screens? I have no idea. Um, if you are, now you're an <laughs> and you are unconcerned. You're, no, you're an, that's right. You're an economist. Um, I would say there's a fifty percent chance that we'll see some action in the next twelve months, and I think an eighty percent chance that we'll see some action in the next five years. So, you know, we hope it'll get made. Meantime, I'm writing more books, which is uh, something you can very clearly con uh, clearly control. Uh, which person or people have most strongly shaped your views of living a, a good life? Um, that, you are being very difficult with the questions here. Um, look, I, 
I think my, your parents shape your views enormously and they shape them in two ways. They shape them by being role models for what you might like to, to do as well. And they shape them by doing things that you say, look, I don't want to do that. I've rebelled against that. So um, I've done both with what I've learned from my parents. I've evaluated what I've taken from my parents, particularly saying bringing up children. So I think I was brought up, you know, my parents did some terrific things bringing us up and they did some things that I don't want to do with my kids. Um, and, and a good life um, for me includes having um, a happy, functional family. It includes seeing my kids do well. And I've been massively happy with the way our kids have turned out. I don't take the credit for that, but I take, how can I say, uh, there are a few things I didn't screw up that I might have screwed up, so I feel, I feel pretty good about that. Um, but... Yeah, there's no there's no individual I don't think who sort of said you know this is what a, this is what a good life looks like. Um, it's it's a combination of a lot of things and figuring stuff out for yourself. And for you, clearly, your the way in which you structure your life involves saying no to a range to a range of things. What do you what do you carve away? What do you what do, what do you put off to one side in order to create this uh, these big chunks of writing time? Well, when I when I enrolled in my in my writing studies. I still had a job. It was, I was freelancing, but it was quite demanding freelancing. I had a young family, and it was important to give them time as well as time to my marriage. Um, and I thought, this is going to fill up my life pretty pretty much. I'm going to do 10,000. I mean, I was wanting to spend full-time job equivalent on my writing, plus do the freelancing to make a living, plus the family and so forth. So I didn't watch any television whatsoever. Okay, like, the only television I watched was I watched you know, DVDs of series that I needed to watch in order to um, inform my screenwriting. So I was watching critically. I only read books critically. Now, that sounds a really dull sort of life, but it wasn't because I had my family and I had my studies, which I was finding really exciting. I had a job I had a job to do. So I gave up on those sorts of things. I tried to keep friendships going. Um, but, you know, if I had to pick one thing that I say, you, you just don't need in your life is mindless television. Um, and, and, look, social media is... Um, I would say to a, a writer out there, forget it. Um, or, or spend 20 minutes a day focused on Facebook or whatever it's going to be. But the idea of idly letting social media work in the background because you, you rationalise to yourself that that's somehow helping the marketing. The single best thing I would say to someone about marketing your book is write a better book. <laughs> spend the time writing a better book because ultimately it'll be word of mouth that sells that book, not, not some sort of a marketing exercise. Graham Simpson, thanks very much for taking the time to talk today about writing, marriage and living a good life. Thanks very much, Andrew. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. If you like this podcast, please rate us on iTunes. Next week, I speak with Lana Sanders, Chief Executive Officer of the Women in Prison Advocacy Network, about addiction, prison and healing.